Asby Brown is a leading authority on Japanese architecture, design, and environmentalism, and the author of several groundbreaking books, including Small Spaces, which was published in 1993, The Japanese Dream House, published in 2001, The Very Small Home, published in 2005, and The Genius of Japanese Carpentry, published in 1989 and 2014. He is lead researcher for SafeCast. A global citizen science organization that pioneered crowdsourced environmental monitoring. Asby Brown has lived in Japan since 1985. Asby Brown, welcome to the One Planet podcast and Future Cities. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Just Enough, which is coming into its third edition, which is hugely illuminating about Edo Japan and what we can learn from it. I believe you're going to read from your foreword. I think this one passage from the foreword sort of sums up why it's a good thing for us to know about today and, and may help us understand how to deal with our problems. Japanese society once faced the prospect of collapse due to environmental degradation, and the fact that it did not is what makes it such an instructive example. Japan entered the Edo period in 1603, facing extreme difficulties in obtaining building timber, suffering erosion and watershed damage due to having clear cut so many of its mountains for lumber, and virtually unable to expand agricultural production to the degree necessary to feed a growing population. The needs of the urban population, particularly those of the capital city of Edo, but also those of Osaka, Nagoya, and numerous other growing cities, conflicted with those of the rural areas, and the life of farmers was made all the more difficult by their legal obligation to surrender one third or more of their harvest to support the warrior classes. In terms of environment and natural resources, Japan was both challenged and blessed. The archipelago is extremely mountainous, and arable land is limited to a handful of broad coastal plains and many narrow mountain valleys, amounting to only about one fourth of the nation's land area. At the start of the Edo period, nearly all of the potentially arable land had already been open to cultivation and was feeding just barely a population of about 12 million. Agricultural land in many areas was showing signs of exhaustion and degradation, and output was declining. But the country benefits from a temperate climate and warm ocean currents, and it is blessed with abundant rainfall and a long growing season. Fresh water from snowmelt is generous and fast flowing, and the extensive watersheds drain into innumerable fertile valleys and wetlands. The virgin forest that originally covered the mountains of the archipelago was extensive and diverse in both broadleaf and coniferous. Species and it provided an extremely rich habitat in which all manner of flora and fauna flourished. Nature itself had endowed Japan well for human habitation, but by the early 1600s, the land was suffering from over exploitation by the large population. All the more remarkable then that 200 years later, the same land was supporting 30 million people, two and a half times the population, with little sign of environmental degradation. Deforestation had been halted. And reversed. Farmland improved and made more productive, and conservation implemented in all sectors of society, both urban and rural. Overall, living standards had increased, and the people were better fed, housed, and clothed, and they were healthier. By any objective standard, it was a remarkable feat, arguably unequaled anywhere else before or since. This success can be credited partly to technological advances and partly to government direction. Agricultural breeding played a part, as did improved hydrology. Design was crucial, as was the timely collection and distribution of information. But more than anything else, 
this success was due to a pervasive mentality that propelled all of the other mechanisms of improvement. This mentality drew on an understanding of the functioning and inherent limits of natural systems. It encouraged humility, considered waste taboo, suggested cooperative solutions, and found meaning and satisfaction in a beautiful life in which the individual took just enough from the world and not more. The stories in this book describe many more of the more remarkable technical aspects of life during this period, as well as relevant social, political, and economic factors, but their real purpose is to convey this mentality of just enough as it guided the daily life of millions throughout the society. It fills me with hope in a time where we don't really see, as, as you identify, actual examples of what is sustainable living or what is now become to call the circular economy. So for us, and so many of us are living in cities, we are living in the century of the city. And we hear a lot about creating smart cities, smart buildings, smart thinking, but very little about non-technology driven solutions. Communities living in cities have little idea of what their future is gonna look like, housing, transport, climate, education. What is your vision for cities of the future? What can we learn from Edo Japan and adapt for a rapid transition? It's a great question. And, you know, I wouldn't propose that we try to return to the same kind of technical solutions, technological solutions. We have so many more tools uh, at our disposal. But I think uh, understanding how cities function, the interactions, their impacts on the wider environment, the, the, the needs of community itself, what does it take to have a, a, a city, a town, a neighborhood? that evolves in a way that people feel a sense of belonging and, and that they want to take care of it. One of the remarkable things about the city of Edo during this period, again, from about 1600 to the middle of the 19th century, when Japan opened to the West and began to modernize, was the very large population. The city of Edo, which was renamed Tokyo, had about 1.3 million people. That was a very, very large city. It was actually denser than most of our cities today in most parts of the globe. And, and yet the lifestyle seemed to be enjoyable. There was uh, not a lot of space to go around. People were fairly cramped. It was a caste-oriented society with a great difference in resources of what the samurai castes and wealthy people had as opposed to uh, commoners. But basically life was pretty good and they recycled everything. Everything was reused, upcycled, waste, as I mentioned earlier, was considered taboo. A person who was wasting was considered an ugly person. So um, there's a lot we could talk about the design, the layout, scale. Buildings were basically two stories, rarely taller than two stories. Very good use of, of environmental features, microclimates, uh, you know, use of wind for cooling, passive solar for heating, good use of planting, gardens, etc. But I think the main thing is it needs to be a place where people feel like they belong and want to take responsibility. And that seems to be quite embedded as you go back into the religion and uh, belief system in Japan from Shinto, or there is that word or concept, uh, the beauty of imperfections, uh, Kintsugi. So I feel like it's really embedded. I was wondering what the educational model is in Japan for you know, instilling ideas of sustainability, because now, of course, a lot of the practices in Edo, Japan have been abandoned. Yes. Well, talking about the situation today and talking about it 
you know, centuries ago is very, very different. Again, Japan during the Edo period was very, very literate society, very, very high percentage of literacy, certainly in the cities, even in rural areas, much more literate than compared to the West. Great developed publishing industry with beautifully illustrated books where even for people who couldn't read, they could look at the illustrations and figure out what was being explained, uh, how to make things, how to, how, how to grow food, etc. Um, one of the things that was surprising to me about you know writing this book and talking to people and doing my research and sharing the ideas was that Japanese people today didn't really know that much about what their ancestors had, had, had accomplished and, and why it is valuable, even crucial, not just for Japanese people, but for the world at large. Uh, so there's a, a real need for re-education and, and reintroducing these ideas within Japan and certainly other parts of East Asia because many East Asian nations shared a lot of these characteristics. Yes, and so I, I'm very hopeful that, you, as you put forth, that Japan, having had this solid, solid base and it even embedded in its philosophy and national character, that it could become a leader. I was surprised because I recently interviewed um, Bill Hare of Climate Analytics, and when I saw the global rankings for Japan, I was surprised it was like measuring around the, in the area of the U.S., and so I, I didn't understand that, but of course the, the population and the limited resources perhaps creates other challenges. Yeah, you know, it, it is very interesting, and I've been here for over 30 years and have been observing, you know, these developments and trends, uh, ex had expected things to be moving more progressively at a quicker pace. And certainly after the disaster in 2011, which included the disaster of the, the Fukushima nuclear power plant, there was a great soul searching happening throughout the nation where people said, ah, oh, we've been doing it wrong. We're, we're too dependent on the wrong kind of energy. Our ancestors knew so much more about how to live with the environment. We have to change, we have to change. And I expected that that would be a turning point because Japan, certainly even in the modern period since you know uh, it opened to the West, has turned on a dime. It opened to the West, suddenly changed its entire society. Uh, it became a very militaristic society and lost the war in 1945, turned on a dime again to become a democratic nation. Uh, it's possible for the country to change its direction. And I look around and I say, Japan has everything that the world is hungry for. Certainly design, certainly if it's food or clothing or, or interior design or furnishings or vehicles or almost everything we use, appliances, the design is wonderful, very advanced. It's a very educated society. There's a great craftsmanship ethic. You know, they know how to make things well. Uh, so the country could rebrand itself if it decided to take the direction to become the, the leading sustainable nation in the world, generating solutions that everyone in the rest of the world wants. But it hasn't happened. And, and this is very, very puzzling to me. At the same time, the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, are everywhere. We see them posters on buses. Every every you know uh, businessman has a pin with the little rainbow colors of that. And you go into uh, government offices; they all have you know information and posters, and they're they're all on board with this. And yet, I wonder what is keeping the country back from becoming even more sustainable. Well, as you mentioned, um, Fukushima and. Uh 
you know, I know that another one of your roles is as a lead researcher for SafeCast. I guess the, the Fukushima actually spurred uh, many changes that, that you're, you know, helping monitor. Uh, yes, it's interesting because, you know, my background is in design and architecture, fine art. I, I came to Japan to learn about traditional carpentry. I spent three years researching at a temple in Nara with the last great temple carpenter. His name is Nishioka. And I'm very, very focused on that. And yet, in 2011, I took on a, a, a totally different role, something that I didn't realize that I was capable of doing, which was to work with a citizen group to monitor radiation in the environment. And, and we developed our own uh, sensors that have GPS and data logging that people can put on their car or bicycle or carry and make maps of radiation. And within a few years, it had become global. And I focused it, you know, my, my, what I had learned about Edo and the understanding of the way things are connected. Let's say something like forest, watershed, uh, agriculture, even then to city. There are flows and interchanges at many, many points. And people of the Edo period, I think, had a very good understanding of that. It may not have been scientific in our sense, but they sort of understood if you pull on this over here, or you knock that over there, that something else on the other side will be affected. And I have been uh, trying to use that awareness when I'm learning about or, or spending time in uh, radioactively contaminated environment in Fukushima and working with people there and talking about what's happening. Because the radioactive cesium, which there was a lot of that that spread from the Fukushima nuclear power plant throughout the region, you know, it, it clings to dirt and clay, and then it'll eventually be washed down into the creeks and rivers and the same watershed that is a source of life normally becomes the transport system for radioactive pollution. Uh, and this is a fascinating thing. So just, we have to understand how things are recycled, you know, how, how does this change? How do trees take it up? You know, what happens to that stuff? What happens in the food? So it, it requires a rather total understanding, a total vision of these interactions. And now we have this terrible war happening in Ukraine. And two days ago, there was the news that Russian troops had occupied the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And I know people who work in that area and reach out immediately and to try to find out what's happening, you know, you know, radiation is going up or, or is it safe or what's happening? And then yesterday I was at a film screening and suddenly got news that a Russian, you know, shell had hit a, a radioactive waste storage facility in Ukraine. And so what's happening with that? And where's the data? Where's the data? So it becomes about data, but it also becomes about people and becomes about trust. And our situation today, part of our global, you know, situation is the difficulty of trusting, of finding people and sources of information that you trust. So we at SafeCast, we think of our project to be as much about generating trust as it is about generating data. Yeah, and Japan has always feared their influences being changed by Western culture. And you said in your book that once Japan opened its doors to industrialization and trade, the sustainability changed. Do you think Japan was right in fearing globalization? That is a great question. Uh, we can think about it and how things change from era to era. If you look at the 19th century, mid 19th century, when Japan was being asked by Western countries to open up, 
because it had been closed for 250 years. It had a what's called the Sakoku policy, almost no import and almost no people were coming in and no people were going out for, for over 200 years. The country feared being colonized. It, it looked at what was happening in Asia. The more it learned about the colonization of other countries in Africa, uh, South America, etc. It was it was a genuine fear. It was a very rational fear. And they decided they would try to prevent that. Ironically, that meant that they decided to accelerate their adoption of Western technology, to accelerate modernization, industrialization, and technology, to build strong military, to build an economy that could compete uh, with Western nations. It, it led to a terrible militarized society and ultimately to the Second World War and, and, and horrific results of that. But in a way, yeah, the, the leaders who ushered in those transformations in the Meiji period that began in the 1860s, I think they were very wise and they learned a lot quickly and were able to prevent Japan from being colonized. So at the same time, it Japan is... is it's fascinating because there's always an interest in novelty in something new, even though it's very traditional and, and values the ancient and, you know, the the things that have been handed down, you know, from the forebears. There's a great love for novelty. And this was true in the past as well. So when the nation initially opened up to the West, Western things were all the rage. Hats and clothes and trousers and shoes and new kinds of architecture, new kinds of food everything, trains, you know, you name it. it. Took about 30 years when people started to say, hey, have we gone too far? Have we lost something that's important? And then a big question became for Japanese people, how to maintain what would be the spirit of, of Japan while being modern? And I think we're still going through that here. It's still a kind of inner conflict and yet we see wonderful examples in design and cultural development in every field where this has been done very beautifully and in an interesting way. It's a challenge for all of us. I think that as human beings, we are very drawn to novel, that you don't see it so much in the animal world where they want to keep on reinventing. It's interesting because your background is the design and in the fine art and architecture. So we can think about the house and the traditional Japanese home as, as a work of art. Everything has a use. Everything can be like reused, very sustainable. And it's quite beautiful. And at Japan, the citizens seem to know how everything was made and how it worked together. And there's a great joy in knowledge when knowing how things work. In a sense, everyone becomes an artist and everyone helps another. And, and we aren't clinging to this individualist way of thinking, which has gotten us into a lot of trouble. What did you learn from that? And how could we all empower ourselves and become the sustainable artists that we all have the capacity to be? Yes, people are creative. And it's pretty much, you know, if you just leave people alone, if, if you don't put barriers in the way to their inventive spirit, to their search for solutions, to their enjoyment of making something or trying things out, people will do it normally. And at our, our modern, in a way, we, we see this as very accelerated, uh, very fast trends, very fast changes in technology and things. Whereas in earlier eras, it maybe wasn't as fast, but it, it was still happening. And one of the wonderful things about the Edo period is um, it was very inventive, partly because solutions needed to be found for 
dealing with the lack of resources of just about everything. I mentioned agriculture earlier, certainly building, you know, how do you build uh, with less wood? and build a beautiful, sturdy structure with, with less wood. They found ways to do that. Or how do you make use of, you know, reused timbers and things? They found ways to do that. One example that I use often is rice straw. Rice was, of course, the staple, is still the staple, and it's grown for food. The grain is the food. But every other part was also used, and especially the straw, which is called wara. And this was sort of a household craft, especially in rural areas where people in the winter months, they would spend their time making, weaving floor mats, raincoats, hats, sandals, bags, just about everything you could think of out of this rice straw. And this straw was essentially a byproduct. And when you look at these things that have been passed down to us, they're exquisite you know, these are true artisans. And the, the sense you get is that almost every family was, was training a family of artisans. We see the same in, in weaving. Almost every household did weaving. We look at these wonderful textiles passed down to us and, and they are, again, exquisite in their weaving, in their dyeing and, and the other craft. So there was a need for it. There was ultimately an economic incentive to do things yourself but of course, this leads to this wonderful, you know, uh, flowering of culture and expression. And we look at it now and think, my God, how do they do these beautiful things every day uh, as a matter of course? Just thinking purely about a matter of survival, but it, the byproduct is beauty. Um, of course, in that period in Japan and around the world, most people, the majority of people were agricultural workers. So what are some of those sustainable jobs for today? And relating to agriculture, how can we continue to feed more people while leaving a smaller footprint on the land? Agriculture is a huge challenge. And as you probably know and have had other people's people discuss, the main pressure on it is growing population and the need to feed population. We had the Green Revolution beginning a few decades ago, which managed to grow a lot of food and, and, and to actually feed many more people than we thought would be possible. But again, the cost of that was often monocultures, was what we call scientific farming, using lots of inputs of chemical fertilizers, etc. The use of water, of course, for agriculture is very high. One of the highest uses of, of, of fresh water on the planet is for agriculture. So I, I think any solutions that we find, for instance, primarily to do agriculture with less water waste is beneficial. A lot of that can be done through intelligence systems and sensors and monitoring that can bring water to where it's needed specifically. And I, I mentioned Fukushima earlier. I know farmers in Fukushima who have been working with researchers to develop these wonderful systems to grow food that has no you know, radio radioactive pollution and also all of the nutrients and the, the water is, is, is you know, distributed based on the sensor, the sensor readings. It's beautiful. Uh, so we know it's possible. I think we see a lot of other issues that have to do with scale and i believe it's an ongoing debate i'm a great proponent of urban farming and one of the things that we saw in japan in the edo period was that the samurai classes now these were the, the warlords these were the the actually they were soldiers and ultimately they became office workers and their income was fixed and as inflation happened they didn't have enough money and they all started to grow food. They had enough property to have a garden, 
which was usually initially ornamental, trees and ponds and things, and then they would gradually turn them over to grow food. So they had almost half of the ground of the city and they were growing food there. Now this was remarkable. I don't think it's been equaled anywhere since then, except perhaps during uh, wartime, Second World War in, in places like, the, like England. So I, there's ways to feed people, making use of smaller scale production as well as larger scale production when necessary and trying to minimize, you know, the food miles, trying to minimize uh, the transportation costs and trying to minimize those things. One of the principles of a circular economy, for instance, is that it should be regenerative. It should be restorative. And the Japanese, you know, during this period, the Edo period, did that. They constantly replenished the fertility of the soil and could use the same farm plots for centuries, constantly replenishing it. And I think this is a principle that I would like to see happen on a broad scale globally when we look at our agricultural issues. And speaking of uh, intelligent uh, buildings, I mean, beyond just enough, I mean, you've written about this extensively and the ingenious use of space within the personal home, whole families living on 10 square meters, I can't even envisage it, but um, it's a reality we will ha we'll have to think about, particularly in our large cities. So just, you know, describe some of those ingenious solutions. And then also on the another scale, as you speak about farming, there is vertical farms and describe your um, reflections on those. Well, to talk initially, this compact housing situation was common in every Japanese city where pretty much two thirds of the population, the commoners were living in one room rented apartments. And again, they were about 10 square meters, which is kind of shocking. And it wasn't considered poverty. It, it, you know, this was actually the way most people were living. This was middle-class people who had jobs. They may be craftspeople or teachers or doing some other kind of work. And, and this was just the way people were living. These were communal apartment dwellings organized in a line around a courtyard and an alleyway and one of the reasons that things worked so well was because so much of the needs could be satisfied outside of the home. In other words, you didn't need to keep a lot of food on hand because food was available nearby, could be delivered. Lots of things were delivered. Your, your home itself, you didn't necessarily need to own everything. You could rent your bedding and your kitchen stove and everything else if, if you needed to. You didn't have to actually own it. The design that evolved in this kind of living, it's called the Nagaya, which means a long house, you know, apartment, uh, depended on having everything being very compact, being able to be folded out of the way, put out of the way, and, and people just could not have a lot of possessions. So this placed a limit on what people were able to own and, and what they wanted to own. And this was really, and, and, but everything was beautiful. Every, the designs were wonderful when we look at them today. Of course, if you have one beautiful, for instance, a charcoal uh, brazier, a hibachi or something for, for, for use for heat or for, for grilling food, these things were very, very beautiful. So at the same time, you know, people in the rural areas, the farmhouses were generous. They were large and there was a lot of people living in them. The family would have, you know, six or eight people perhaps. And, and there was a big workspace and a lot of room. So it's not like everyone in the country was living in a compact dwelling. It's really the middle uh, and lower classes in the urban areas who did this and but yet built a very lively and interesting uh, and beautifully designed lifestyle that way. You asked about farming and vertical farms. There are experiments and I, you know, I, I remain a bit skeptical 
at this kind of solution because again, it, they require lots of construction and energy inputs. So there's some interesting experiments we've seen in Japan and we know that it can be done and perhaps at a large enough scale, it can be done at, at an acceptable cost performance. But I would rather turn away from the, let's call it the technology solutions and, and look more at the ones that are working with the services and what nature is providing for free. So how do you make use of other places that are underused, for instance, for, for agriculture and, and maybe having more people producing uh, a greater quantity of their food? There are three things that I found really interesting when I was listening to Asby Brown. One thing I found interesting was when Asby Brown talked about how we, quote, shouldn't return to the same kind of technical solutions from the Edo period, and that by, quote, understanding how cities function, the interactions, their impacts on the wider environment, etc., we will be able to create a more sustainable environment. When I read his book, Just Enough, there were a lot of examples of how the people in the Edo period helped sustain the environment, including using their own ways for fertilization and using water used to cook vegetables, meat, etc. in their food instead of throwing it out. I think it is incredible how their practice ways were so sustainable, helping preserve the environment. And I agree with Asby Brown that by understanding how they functioned, interacted during that time period, we can start to come up with our own ways of implementing practices into our daily lives to become more sustainable. Another thing I found interesting is when he eventually talks about how, quote, cutting down a tree ends its life, but it is used to continue life for the next hundred of years. When I heard this, I thought that this was very poetic. My grandma used to talk about how nature was alive, that plants have feelings, and she would always take walks in her garden and talk to her plants. My mom told me about a study done with trees and how they are a network. When one of the trees was cut down, the others got sick. I've heard so much about how trees were alive like us, so I interpreted this as a way of saying that a tree is sacrificing its life so that it can help people like us live. I think if more people see that trees are alive like us, I think they will think twice about cutting down a tree so easily. The last thing that I found interesting when I was reading Asby Brown's book, Just Enough, was a quote stating, quote, sustainable society will come because the alternative is no society at all. When I read this, I was shocked and so in agreement because it is very true. Climate change is rapidly increasing. And if we stay with the practices and ways of life that we have currently, there might not be a society left. This reminded me of the music video for Feels Like Summer by Childish Gambino. It seems like a regular music video. However, the lyrics talk about climate change and how the environment is rapidly declining. It shows how as a society, we don't see what's important. Like in this video, we see all these people having fun, enjoying summer, but red and orange surrounds them as the sun scorches and no one seems to notice. It is really scary to think about but it does pose a question to, do you think we are past the point of return for climate change and saving the environment? And what do you think it would take for people to open their eyes to this crisis? Now, back to the interview. And are there any remnants of the Edo period sustainability in Japan today? Yes. The short answer is yes, there are remnants of 
the sustainable practices of the Edo period in Japan today, but you have to hunt for them and they may not look like uh, they used to. There's an interesting value in Japan, it's called motai nai. And this has become a buzzword in the past decade or so, um, brought to the attention of the, the, the world by various people. And this means, you know, waste not, want not, you know, don't waste things. So when I arrived in Japan as a student, I did a homestay. And I was surprised because the mother of the family would keep all the wrapping paper after she came back from shopping and would flatten it out and fold it up and she kept it in a stack underneath her kitchen sink. And I, as an American of my generation, I thought, well, this should just be thrown away. I mean, this is, you know, it's just gonna be in the way. And she's, oh, no, no, I can use this for a lot of things. I can use it for this and this and this and this and this. She, she was trained, she was educated and raised to see the utility in things that we might ordinarily want to throw away. Japanese cuisine is fascinating because it it's, uses every part of the vegetable, every part of the fish, every part of whatever it is that you're, you're using. So it's, it's wonderful that, you know, again, the idea of if you're preparing a meal and you have a lot of things to throw away, then you've done something wrong. There are other values that are, again, maybe less visible. Certainly all Japanese architects, I believe, have been trained in both the Japanese tradition and the Western tradition. And we see a lot of very, very well thought out designs in architecture that make use of features of Japanese traditional houses. But for every example I can point to where there is continuity and evidence that people have learned from the past and are, are, are doing things in a more sustainable way based on these ideas that they inherited, there are lots of counterexamples of where they're not. And again, to talk about architecture, Japanese buildings, like many in other parts of, of East Asia and also earlier parts of Europe, you know, before the modern period, are held together with wooden joints and pegs and wedges, and they can be dismantled. And when a Japanese house uh, was taken down, was demolished, every part of it could be reused. All the beams and columns, there were lumber yards uh, that sold only used timber. Some would come to buy that. Someone would come to buy the roof shingles, the tiles. Someone would come to buy the tatami floor mats or the sliding screens or, or the, the metal hardware. All this stuff was, was reusable and was intended to be reused. There's a concept now of building as material bank. And there's actually an organization that is promoting this. And this is this idea that when you build a building, the materials are simply being borrowed for a certain period of time, uh, a few tens of years, a century perhaps. And when the building is at end of life, when it needs to be replaced, then those materials go back into our resource pool to be reused. I wish that Japanese builders today did things that way. That would, if they did, that would be a remarkable contribution to uh, sustainability and, and circularity. Yes, because we tend to forget, and this comes with increased specialization and not understanding, as you say, how the whole system works together, that it takes not only the labor of putting together the, the house or the building, 
but the energy to create to, to make those metals make those nails and make the wood and cut the wood and all that so it's a it's a waste and as you say we should feel ashamed when we're wasting it's something i think in pre- previous generations appreciated a bit more my grandfather was like that he grew up in the depression and they knew they tended to know <laughs> they knew what hardship was like it's now just becoming popular like this concept of sharing and it, it's applied to maybe automobile sharing or perhaps you know making sure that something is more durable so that it doesn't it isn't thrown away after a period of time we get a longer usage out of it or it can be repaired what are some innovative new sharing models or what is your vision for broadening out that concept of sharing yeah it's a very interesting subject as well you know sharing let, let, let's say it is a way to maximize the use of things by having maybe more people use use it and and one way uh, you you maybe mentioned you know sharing automobiles that's one approach to it there are other things where people you know take uh, use of something for a period of time a bicycle for instance and then it goes back to the pool and someone else can use it but there's other other approaches as well which are which are interesting think anything that can be rented or provided as a service rather than requiring ownership is one direction for that. An interesting development in Japan, and I've been following this for the last 10 years or, or, or more, is the rise in shared shared housing, which as a student in the United States, almost everybody shared an apartment. And I think it's very, very common in Europe and probably in the UK as well. People often, you just, you know, there's someone has an apartment, it has several bedrooms, and you just sort of go in together and you find a way to live. This was very common. This was not common in Japan. The idea of living with people you're not related to or sharing, unless you're a couple, this was not something that happened, but as kind of a grassroots movement, beginning a little more than a decade ago, we started to see architects and developers designing shared household situations for people. Some of them could be just a house. Uh, very well designed to maintain the privacy of the people and to encourage uh, people to spend time together as well. I've, there's several that I've seen that are taking like former dormitories, like a corporate dormitory with maybe 50 units and redesigning it to have a huge kitchen where lots of people can cook at the same time and huge dining room and, you know, common spaces and other amenities and people have their private apartment for themselves. So this works in Japan now, uh, partly because people follow, follow rules. And what I see it as is kind of society may have a, a self-healing function because what we have been seeing for for decades in Japan is increased isolation, especially of young people. Maybe they go to university and they're living in a, a one-room apartment and their first job, maybe they're living in a one-room apartment again. They become isolated, uh, lots of internet addiction, uh, a lot of people who never go out. Uh, and this grassroots, you know, spontaneous emergence of shared housing as a viable alternative here looks to me like society's healing itself. People say, no, I want to be with other people. I want to be with other people. And and some of the interesting ones, they, they, they're sort of grouped because the people have similar interests, like a bunch of architects or artists living together, or maybe people all working in the finance industry at a, you know, entry level job or, or, or maybe, you know, something else like that. So it's a very interesting approach for, for shared housing. I think Japan may well provide some of these solutions back to the West. 
Exactly. The sense of a, a circular economy is not just good for the planet and for our well-being in terms of our bodies, but in terms of it, it creates a sense of uh, community when you know what everyone contributes. And that is sad about the hikikomori phenomenon in Japan. So I'm glad to see that there's some kind of solutions that balance that. And you must have remarked this in, in your travels as well, is that sometimes in less de so-called developed countries, everyone might have like a little shop, you know, their home might be a mm. shop or something. It's kind of strange. It's the bartering system. And I'd be surprised if I'm like, how does this work? I, I wondered what we could learn about it in our developed cities where I feel like, gosh, I'm living in an apartment. It's a cooperative, I guess, but it could be more cooperative. We could be combining our purchasing power to buy in, in bulk. And so there would be less waste and, and in economic benefits. Well, there's so many other ways we could rethink. And as you speak about the courtyard spaces, I don't know how they're used uh, in Japan, but I, I would like to really see them used as a social space instead of everyone being kind of in their own private space. Again, there's a big difference between, you know, the traditional neighborhood layout design of, let's say, you know, 200 years ago and what we have today. And like many countries, most people now do put a premium on privacy. And this is... In a way, it's understandable. Modern society inundates us with, you know, advertisement and people wanting something, people trying to sell you something, and lots of people you do not want to have contact with. So people tend to retreat. And this is probably the norm. The shared courtyard that I described for the people living in the Nagaya, the one-room apartments, this was great. I mean, they would share the water supply, the well, and they would have, you know, the toilets that they're all sharing and you know they would be able to do their laundry out there and you know they have all, all sorts of other things that they're doing together out there as part of you know just everyday life we don't have that much now anymore almost never it almost has to be legislated enforced and organized and today is the day everyone will go out and clean the street but again designers and certain clients want that sort of thing. So we are finding it. We are finding it. Japan has not done public space very well in the modern period. Uh, and I remember remarking when I was in graduate school in Tokyo, my, you know, co, my, what, you know, co-students were working on a project and I was saying, ah, that would be a good place for a bench. And they said, we don't need benches. I said, what do you mean you don't need benches? <laughs> you know, like, they really thought that a bench was an unnecessary amenity to have in a public plaza or courtyard. So I thought this is very odd that people become accustomed to that. So, yeah, I don't think, you know, there are wonderful architects. We could talk about specific architects and designers and specific projects that do point in very, very good directions. But at the same time, you know, these tend to be the exception uh, rather, than, rather than the rule. And some of the better ones are low cost. This is also interesting. They're done as response to making something that can be loved in a situation where the people don't have a lot of money to throw at it. They're not going to try to do something aspirational and, and flashy and glitzy. Well, yeah, let's talk about some of those architects that uh, you admire. And, and again, low cost because everything has a purpose. It's not superfluous. Yeah, there are, you know, Again, there's quite a few, and I've been in Japan for, for a long time. Um, the architect named Kengo Kuma is, is someone that I know fairly well. And, uh, you know, he, he has a very good way with designing both public space, commercial space, residential space, etc. And he has designed a bunch of projects that have been reviving 
you know, towns that villages that were basically dying out. And th this is a situation in Japan in general, that the, you know, society, the population is aging. And lots of villages, you know, in rural areas, they just don't have much economic livelihood anymore. So Kengokuma has done some very, very interesting projects to revive small towns. Someone who used to work for him is named Hiroshi Nakamura. And he has designed several interesting, very sustainable buildings in a town called Kamikatsu, which decided it, it decided it would become the zero waste town. And it's remarkable what they're achieving. And Nakamura has designed buildings using almost exclusively recycled material, recycled windows, recycled, you know, furniture become the storage systems inside using parts of lumber, the offcuts that would not normally be used, that would be shredded or turned into pulp, using those for structure as well. And, and it is very, very popular. It really is showing a direction. Uh, it's a bit simple. It's homey. It's woody you know, warm, but he's showing that direction as well. There are, there are lots of others again, you know, but it really depends on having the client. And if the client wants it, you know, then many architects will be able to come up with a good solution. But again, I, I trained architect myself and I talk to my colleagues and I say, how many of your of your clients ask you for sustainable, you know, solutions or ask you for, you know, passive solar or ask you for this and almost none. Basically, people are not asking for it. On the other hand, there is a very large home manufacturing industry here, what we would call prefabricated homes, which are very technically advanced and like the automobile industry or like the appliance industry, they have a huge motivation to minimize waste in their production and also to produce homes that are very energy efficient and that they can market as being sustainable, getting a little green stamp on it because that is a sales point for people. They may not always know what that means. And a lot of it may be greenwash. Is it really sustainable? We don't know. But there, there are a lot of solutions for that, that result in less waste in the manufacturing of homes in Japan today. And some of them are looking forward to what I was mentioning uh, earlier about, you know, how can we design to be reusable later? So this is beginning. But if the, if the market doesn't demand it, then it's not going to happen. There has to be some financial incentive as well as the, the, the ethical and cultural and, and other, other incentive. Oh, yes. Prefab used to have a bad name, but some of them are beautiful. I wish I could have one. It's actually now finding the land and they're reasonable. So that's what's, you know, this is the difficulty. There's the premium on land. And tell us a little bit, you are yourself a teacher. So what do you enjoy about that process? Yes, I uh, have been teaching in Japan for, you know, more than 20 years, first in architecture department at a university in Kanazawa and now at an art university outside of Tokyo called Musashino Art University. I'm in the sculpture department and I, I didn't intend to be a teacher. I didn't study education or anything, but I found that I really like it. It suits me. And particularly in creative fields like design or the arts, a, a young student is bringing something that's important to them from their heart. And, and when we look at it and we try to evaluate it, it, it is connected with themselves. And it, it's a bit tricky sometimes. You know, people can be hurt, you know, if, if, if what they're showing doesn't seem to be 
you know, something's missing or something's not right. But I find it to be a very interesting kind of emotional labor, meeting of hearts. And, and of course, if you have a lot of students, you, you know, it can be exhausting to go from one to the other. But the main thing that I try to help students understand is that we have lots of options. We have lots of alternatives. There are lots of paths through life. Uh, I could never have predicted where my life would take me. When I came to Japan, I didn't expect to be here for the rest of my life, but I have been. And I looked back and said, well, that was a, that was a, a, a fork in the road. After the Fukushima disaster, I didn't think I would be continuing to work on, on those issues for 10 years. That was a fork in the road. We can't anticipate what opportunities will be presented, but we should take a chance if it's something that resonates with you to do it. It's difficult. People need jobs. They need money. They want careers. And that's always going to be there. But I, I feel like it's important for people of older generations to help younger people understand that they have, they have time. They can make mistakes. They can change their direction. They can decide to do something else. And hopefully they will come into contact with people who share their goals and aims and, and can, can find themselves working together. That's so true. So in contrast to, you know, what, you know, drew you to Japan, you, you're from New Orleans, you know, and another, you know, it's a creative part of the world in America. So how do you contrast, you know, the approach in America and your experience in America to what you've experienced now in Japan? Well, if you're talking about America today, I would say, let's say just in terms of sustainability, there is more awareness and greater interest and more motivation and more regulation, for instance, pointing in that direction. Uh, many public buildings are required to be LEEDS compliant to have, you know, sustainable, certainly energy and other, other material use uh, features. This is becoming very, very common in the U.S. Culturally, there is a bit of a buzz, you know, uh, against sustainability, recycling. At the same time, compared to Europe, it's not that far along. I think Europe remain, remains the leader. And if we talk about circular economy, again, when it comes to the point where governments are are making new building regulations or new uh, regulations for manufacturing that require a circular supply chains, circular energy use, regenerative uh, processes, etc. This is really remarkable. So the U.S. is a little bit behind Europe, and Japan is behind the U.S. in general. But again, there are grassroots movements, and and people, you know, we say they vote with their pocketbook. What people are buying and consuming has been changing. And many cases, it's moving towards a more sustainable direction. At the same time, the cost issue is number one for everybody. And fast fashion is very, very popular. Big manufacturers can sell cheaper and, and people really want to save money. So uh, until, again, larger manufacturers of these uh, items embrace these principles and, and develop solutions like fashion that is sustainable, that is circular, then we will, we will have this constant tug of war between the one side wanting to be sustainable, the other side wanting to be cheap. They don't have to be mutually exclusive, but up until now, they generally, sustainable solutions have tended to be more expensive and worse than that, they, they have that image that they're more expensive, which doesn't have to be the case. 
and what Edo Japan showed us is that it absolutely doesn't have to be the case. It can be very inexpensive and very good and uh, very good quality of life, even while it's sustainable. Yes, we don't have to sacrifice if we actually have that intelligent um, design. So many of our world's problems are issues of design. So as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving uh, for the next generation, education, you know, what were some teachers or life lessons that were important to you? You mentioned that I'm from New Orleans and I uh, am very interested in the fact that cities and the places we grow up and live teach us. They, they shape us as much as we shape them. And New Orleans was a wonderful place to grow up in uh, because you wouldn't have said it was sustainable, but the vernacular traditional architecture was naturally cooler in summers because of the way it was built with high ceilings, et cetera, with deep eaves, you know, from the roof, with verandas shaded, with lots of breezes and lots of gardens. Plus it, it, it was full of older buildings. Again, if you're you're in Europe, you're in in, in uh, Paris. Uh, of course, you'll see lots of buildings that are uh, hundreds of years old. But in the United States, that is not that common. So New Orleans was one of the older cities, and and things become gentle over time. Buildings learn from us. We we sh we we teach them. We shape them. We reconfigure them. So, the biggest teacher for me was New Orleans itself, having grown up there. Another great teacher let's say in university was a man named Vincent Scully, who was an architecture historian. And he basically beginning in the 1940s called attention to what we now call vernacular architecture, to the average houses built for the average worker or middle-class family, not the famous showpiece architecture, which everyone was looking at before. He said, no, no, this is who we are. This, this is our identity. And, and we need to look at this and preserve this. So that was a remarkable thing. He confirmed my, my belief that vernacular, normal neighborhoods, normal houses were something really beautiful and important that we should cherish. Another great teacher for me, though, was the temple carpenter who I mentioned earlier that I had spent three years researching with. And when I arrived in Japan in 1980s, I thought that I wanted to be an apprentice and, and learn that carpentry and become a craftsman. But I was already in my late 20s. To be an apprentice for someone like that means seven or eight years of total obedience and no sense at all no uh, that you're going to do your own creative work you're just simply doing the master's work and i realized that and instead i asked him to let me document his project and it was a wonderful uh, life-changing experience and one of the good things about it was if i had been his actual apprentice i wouldn't have been able to ask him anything in fact i couldn't have even talked to him unless he spoke to me first but he would make time for me to ask him and Master Nishoka, why do you do things this way? Why do you leave a gap, you know, when the when it's finished? Why is that gap left there? And he would say, oh, because the wood will change and will settle because of gravity and that gap will close over the next 50 years or everything I would ask him, eventually he brought it back to issues of the environment, trees as living beings that we should love and cherish and respect, that we are, we, we apologize to the tree when we cut it because we are ending that phase of its life, but we promise 
to use it in a way that will continue that life for another thousand years as part of a temple, for instance. And he was constantly pointing out, oh yeah, this this tree's uh, trees at the bottom of the the hill. It's wetter there, so you know that wood is not good for much. But the trees at the top, you know, they are not fighting for light, so they get stouter. And the trees in the middle, they're competing for light, so they get taller, and their branches are higher up, so they have fewer knots. And everything was about you know where the wind came from, where the water came from. Every question returned to that, and that's something that I I realized as I got to know other craftspeople in Japan, whether it's lacquer or other kinds of you know basket basketry or or even you know textiles or whatever, they all had this fundamentally sound environmental understanding that had been handed down for centuries. So to me, Master Nishioka was the very important teacher for me, and we didn't talk about Edo much at all, but. What I learned from him influences my research and my thinking since then. Yes, it all comes back to the the beauty and wonder of the natural world, and we wouldn't be so wasteful if we really respected the life, the lives of the trees, the lives that every living being gives to us in order for us to use them. So hopefully we can reuse them. Um, what are some of your reflections about the beauty and wonder of the natural world? and what um, you would like young people to know, preserve, and remember. I am increasingly interested in things that are less visible, invisibles even, hidden beauty. The natural world, of course, it's full of wonders for our eyes. I love forests. I love to walk in the woods. I love how it smells. I love how it feels under my feet. I love this, the sounds of a forest. I love how the light passes through, how it changes. That's a beautiful experience for me that I often, often seek out. I love the ocean as well. I, I, I love, learn to love mountains. New Orleans is very, very flat. Uh, I didn't see a mountain until I was basically, you know, going to college, but I learned to love those as well. But more than that, I, I look at how things change and and what are the, the forces moving through nature that are providing life, that are exchanging from, you know, plants to people, to other animals, to the rest of the environment? You know, how is it that one mountain will grow one kind of tree while another will grow a different kind of tree? These things are all relatively hidden. There's a great hidden beauty. So it's not for me, beauty is not only what things look like, it's how they function. It's what they are and how they fun function. And I wish that our designs and our architecture and our urban design could be more like that, that people would consider a building beautiful, not simply because it looks nice, but because it's functioning in a beautiful way in terms of our needs for sustainability, needs for anti-waste, needs for providing more for everybody who needs it. So I'm looking more at those invisibles lately. Yes, we all need to respect the invisible. It, it supports the visible. So thank you, Asby Brown. Uh, we need stories that will change the way we think about our world and our future. Your books open a window for some of the grassroots alternatives and practices so we can adapt to ways of living and a more sustainable life and keeping in harmony with nature. So thank you for adding your voice to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. 
thank you very much for having me. It was great to talk to you and give me an opportunity to think about this stuff. So I appreciate it very much. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Megan Higginbarth with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Megan Higginbarth. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.